It's another day in the coffee shop. World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason, and another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation. I'm Tom D'Antoni, and with me today is bass player John Mazzocco, who has been a major part of the Oregon music scene for decades as a member of Paul DeLay and Curtis Salgado's bands, and several bands he's in now. He toured with John Lee Hooker for three years. Boogie Woogie piano player David Vest told me to ask John Mazzocco about breakfast with John Lee, and I will. He also has a thriving business by the name of Blue Dot Communications, which trains business leaders how to make presentations. There is a connection to his musical career there, and we'll find out what that is. Road stories, bandstand stories, a slice of what it's like to be a working musician for a lifetime. Let's meet John Mazzocco. John, welcome to the cupping room. We're in the cupping room here. This is the cupping room. At World Cup Coffee and Tea, our benefactors, yes. That's, that's great. <laughs> I love this little room. Actually, I came in here, I, you know, it's the, the whole cupping process in, in, in coffee shops is, is a mystery to me, except one time I came in here and some guy was actually doing it. That cups lined up all the way down the table here and they were mm-hmm. trying different, different, it's weird anyway. I know we've, we seem to have become very specialized in society nowadays. Yes. Uh, you have to have a certain glass for this and a certain glass and a yeah. fork and a yeah. knife and, and a, yeah. you know, so yeah. everything's. And, and God forbid you have the wrong one. That's it. Or you're absolutely. drinking the wrong coffee. That's right. Or you're ha- or <laughs> at you're the wrong time of day. Yes. With the wrong people. I don't yes. even like those yes. people. I don't even know who those people and, are, but and, I don't and, like them. And if you have gluten. Yeah, there you, you know, go. Forget you, it. Geez. All you're, right. <laughs> you're going to die young. So. Yeah. Um, I eat gluten, by the way, just so everybody knows, in case anybody wants to turn it off right now. Well, you know, uh, I don't know why I'm not dead. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Me too. Yeah. Well, you know, it, they try, a couple of years ago it tried, but I managed to uh, get through it, and I'm very grateful for that. That yeah. was uh, a hard time, but it was, uh, it was a very cathartic time for me, and it was a good time uh, for me to go through it. So. Was it a hard thing? Uh, no, I had um, hepatitis C. Oh, jeez. And, uh, but I've got that cure they talk about on the television. Uh-huh. Did somebody slapped you in the forehead? Well, no, you, the, you <laughs> see that thing on the Havroni that they, that the drug companies, um, and it cured me. Wow. I'm hundred percent cured of the disease. There's no Amazing. indication of it in my body at all. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, drug companies are bad in a lot of respects, Yeah. but boy, they got this one right. Yeah. I mean, it has a 99.95% yeah. success rate yeah. for yeah. Uh, genome one type of yeah. patients. And well, sometimes they get it right. Yeah. You know, you know they cured polio. So yeah. You know, there's I mean, Viagra. Yeah, there's, <laughs> you know what? You are correct. Let and, me that, just, and that was a mistake. Let me channel my Ed McMahon. Yes, sir. Yes. That, and that was a mistake. That was for something else. Really? Yeah, they just discovered the, I wonder who was the first guy, right? It's like, who was the Neil Armstrong of of Viagra? Um, Okay. um, So, uh, um, you're in, you don't really have, do you have, you have, do you have a band? You you play with everybody. I've, yeah, and I've always. Now, you have a couple bands. Yeah, I've got a couple bands I'm playing right bands. now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I have a band called The Knuckleheads. We play every Tuesday at Clyde's yeah. on, on Sandy, and that's uh, uh-huh. me and Carlton Jackson and Alan Hager and Mitch uh, Cashmer and Terry Robb and, yeah. and whoever. It's just a bunch of guys that yeah. want to get together and play this whole stuff. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of turned into this kind of soul jazz harmonica workshop thing, and <laughs> It's really cool, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, we get to play all these uh, kind of 60s soul jazz tunes that mm-hmm. are essentially blues-based, 1-4-5 progressions, uh-huh. but, but really have that different feel, that kind of uh-huh. 60s feel. Yeah. Which, like uh, a which Les is, and Eddie Harris thing? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. It's like Eddie Harris type of stuff, you yeah, know. Yeah. And uh, um, it's really fun. It's the fun. Yeah. And then I have uh, the band The Soul Vaccination, which is my wedding band, if you want to book a wedding. <laughs> Soul Vaccinations available for you. And then I play with uh, Eddie Martinez in, in his band. And yeah. that's kind of my first call. If Eddie calls. Well, yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, because Eddie's <laughs> like the man. You know, I mean, <laughs> if you look at Eddie's uh, discography, it's just, it's jaw-dropping. Yeah. So, and one of the most gracious human beings I've ever met. He's great. He's great. A very yeah. good friend of mine. I'm, I'm yeah. very, he's, he's just, 
humble and great. And I had him in here doing one of these. I could have, I could, could have talked to him for four hours. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I have coffee with Eddie every couple of weeks, yeah. and uh, we, we, we hardly ever talk about music, and we yeah. talk for two and a half hours. Yeah. So what do you talk about? Um, well, usually it's about you know how's things going at work. Eddie runs a small shop. I yeah. run a small shop on yeah. the side. Yeah. Uh, I run a small uh, uh, presentation training business. Mm-hmm. where I work with architects and engineers. Mm-hmm. It's called Blue Dot Communications. Mm-hmm. And I, so I teach architects and engineers how to win big public projects. <laughs> so uh, the last thing I worked on was the Alamo. I worked on, they're going to redesign the whole the, Alamo experience. The one in San Antonio. Yeah, the one in San Antonio. <laughs> so I, I go with these huge architecture firms out of San Francisco and Los Angeles, and uh-huh. I go down there, and I teach them how to stand on stage. I teach them how to do what I'm doing right now with my hands, uh-huh. how to make their point, how to do it yeah. I, just thought it was, I just thought you were Italian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> hey, exactly. and by the way, how come your name isn't, isn't pronounced Matsako? Um, well, <laughs> there's, you know, it's funny because when we came over, now I have yeah. a cousin. Yeah. Okay, here, you want to hear a story? I'd like to hear a story. Okay, here you go. Uh, April 24th, 1985, I played Carnegie Hall in New York City. Uh-huh. Now, when I went back into the green room and that gig, it was John Lee Hooker, Robert Cray, Johnny Copeland, Elvin Bishop, and uh, the Nighthawks were opening for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Nighthawks w- from D.C.? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and uh, with Jimmy Thackeray and those yeah. guys. Yeah. And Jimmy's great. I got another story about Jimmy, but I can't tell you that one. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, so I go back into the green room of Carnegie Hall, and I'm not the only John Mazzocco sitting in the green room. <laughs> now, I did not know that, right, until 25 years later. I found that out about six years ago (laughs) but there was a guy there is a guy who's essentially my third cousin his name is John Mazzocco and it's spelled with an A not an O Uh and he lives in New York City Uh and he was the president of Mercury Records Wow! (laughs) and he signed Robert Cray so when Robert Cray he signed Robert Cray for the whole Smoke and Gun album yeah so when Robert Cray first got a call from Mercury Records Robert said hello and he goes hi this is John Mazzocco and Robert goes (laughs) I know John Mazzocco, and you're not John Mazzocco. <laughs> <laughs> it was my John Kennedy moment. You That's know? funny. Um, <laughs> anyhow, so John was in the green room with uh-huh. me, sitting right next to me, and I didn't know him. <laughs> I had never met him. Yeah. And Robert was in there with us, and I didn't meet him at all. And uh, uh, then 25 years later, I get a call, which is about eight years ago, I get a call. Yeah. At my house, and I wake up and I go, Hello. And he goes, Hi, is this John Mazzocco? And I go, Yeah. And he goes, This is John Mazzocco. <laughs> and I go, well, Who? And he goes, This is John Mazzocco. And he, he explains the whole story to me. <laughs> and uh, of course, I call Robert, you know, and those guys. I'm like, Then he goes, Yeah, that's true. So the whole, I had sat next to this guy at Carnegie Hall for two hours in the green room and didn't, never met him, and he was John Mazzocco. That's great. It's, so it's a remarkable <laughs> experience. You know, weird story. And then I finally met him. In yeah. Las Vegas, about five years ago, we finally yeah. got together and, yeah. and met one yeah. night. Yeah. So. So was it Mazzocco before they came over? Uh, it was. Yeah. His yeah. name was M A Z Z O C C O back in the old country. Yeah. They changed it at Ellis Island. Ah. He came in through Ellis Island. Yeah. My grandfather came in through uh, Portland, Oregon. He oh. came. Wow. He went around the Horn. Jeez. And the the ship stopped in San Francisco, and he stayed on it until it got to Portland. Yeah. Because it was picking up lumber. Huh. And uh, so that was like 1897 or something. Wow. Because so there's another, another, another Italian bass player, uh, Dennis Cayazza. Mm-hmm. And we've gone through the same thing. Fantastic is it player. Cuts, is it Cayazza yeah. or is it Cayazza? I love Dennis yeah. playing. Yeah. yeah. And it's supposed to, the, the two Zs are supposed to be pronounced like a hard T. Yeah. Matsaka. Like pizza. Matsaka. Yeah, like pizza. <laughs> right, right. And my, I can remember my Aunt Ernestine, my Aunt Marguerite, my Aunt... Uh, uh-huh. Angela, you know, I can remember all my old aunts and my aunt Florinda. Yeah. I can remember them. Uh-huh. You know, they would pronounce it Mazzocco. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> we, I, I grew up. It was nothing but Italians, Tom. You know this. Yes, yes. nothing <laughs> but Italians. I mean, it was my cousins were the Leonettis. Yeah. And the yeah. Treglios, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Di Benedettos. Uh huh. And we all lived in Southeast Portland, uh, <laughs> right around. Uh, Pieri's Deli on 39th and Powell. Yeah. And we'd go yeah. in that deli yeah. and the smell would just... There's a friend of mine whose family lived in that area, uh, uh, Cynthia Cimenti. 
The Chimantes, yeah. yeah. You know, did you know the Chimantes? Yeah, sure. Is that right? We all either went to St. Philip Neri or we all went to St. Ignatius. It was, you know, there was only two schools yeah, to go funny. to. That's you know? funny. That's so. funny. It's funny because uh, I was, I was um, having some fun with a, a friend of mine who's, who's, who's Italian when Julius La Rosa died. Mm-hmm. And I, I put a cumpare up mm-hmm. on Facebook. You know, <laughs> and then I couldn't get it out of my head for about three days. Yeah, that's right. Those melodies will stay with me. Da 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 in yeah, that song. each instrument. You know, the first guy I ever played with, this is a really interesting story. The first guy I ever played with in Portland uh, was George Fetich. Now, uh-huh. I don't know if you know who George Fetich is, but uh-huh. you might know him as George Mitchell. Oh. <laughs> now, George Mitchell was a year ahead of me in grade school <laughs> at St. Ignatius. Uh-huh. His real name is Fetich. And his sister, Marilyn, was my first girlfriend, the first wow. girl I ever kissed. Oh, when I was 12 years old. <laughs> but when I was eight years old, I played violin for three months uh-huh. in the, what was then the all-city orchestra for um, the Catholic schools. Uh-huh. And George played every instrument. George was a prodigy <laughs> back then. He was wow. amazing back yeah, then. Yeah. And so he played the piano in the all-city orchestra. He yeah. could play the bass. He could play. <laughs> and I, was, I played violin in the all-city orchestra. And uh, so we actually played two gigs together when I was eight and he was nine. <laughs> but see, back then, he, even then, he was, and he, now, of course, yeah. he was an amazing musician. Yeah. And yeah. he's still one of my very good friends. I love George very much. That's and, great. Uh, <laughs> and, and just a great guy. We are, we are blessed in this town. Yeah, oh, yeah. To have some, oh, yeah. I don't know if George is in the Oregon Music Hall of Fame, but he certainly should he be. He should be, absolutely. He should, you yeah. know, so should Peter yeah. Bow. Right. Peter right. Bow should be. Right. And uh, right. I know Peter's not, and that's a, yeah. To me, that's a gross oversight yeah. for that hall. Because yeah. um, there's nobody else in Oregon, I think, that has three Grammys and, and 25 gold records. Yeah, right. I mean, right, I know. He's got five triple platinum records. It's How amazing. Put yeah. him in the hall. And, and nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. You know, but, and he's a strict Oregonian. You know, his dad was president of the Oregon State Senate. Wow. So <laughs> if you drive to Reesport, you go through the Jason Bow Corridor. Jeez. They've named a part of the state after him. So, <laughs> all right. So I put I put up on Facebook today that, that I was gonna that we're gonna do this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I get a reply from David, our friend David Vest. I love David. And uh, he says that's great. Tell him I said hello. Get him to tell a story about John Lee Hooker and breakfast. <laughs> Uh, that's a messy story. <laughs> now, how, how long were you with, with how, how long did you play with John? I Hooker? played with John for about three and a half years. Wow. Yeah, three and a half, three year, three and a half years. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of let's see. We started in this. It was it just it, three years and a couple months. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Uh, I I remember when I first got the call, Yogi Garcia said, called me up and said, John Lee Hooker's going to call you tomorrow, and I said, Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was pulling me, you know, yeah. pulling my leg, and uh, so I get a call the next day and. Uh, he goes, oh, hello, is this John? And I go, yeah, this is John. He goes, well, this John Lee Hooker. And I go, yeah, right, who is this? He goes, no, 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 this is John Lee Hooker. And I said, oh, okay. And he goes, look, I want you to come down and play bass for me, try out for me, and I'm going to send you a ticket, and you'll be at the airport tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, right. And he goes, no, 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 I'm serious. It's on Belaskis Airlines, Belaskis Airlines, <laughs> and uh, just go to the airport and bring your base. So I'm like, I am, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I go to the airport the next day, and there's a ticket in my name, oh, right? And I get on the plane with my base. I got a T-shirt, some uh, red and black Air Jordans, and a red shirt. <laughs> And uh, I get on the plane and I fly down to San Francisco and I get picked up in the air by the airport by this guy and he goes uh, he goes Hooks wants to see you right now. I said okay. So we drive down to East Palo Alto. We, East Palo Alto at that time was not really uh-huh. very nice. <laughs> West Palo Alto is really nice. Yeah. East Palo Alto not so nice. Okay. Not so nice. So we drive through a whole bunch of uh, you know hookers and pimps on the side of the road and. <laughs> 
we pull into this bright blue building and uh and it, I get out and I walk in and there's Roy Rogers and Mike Osborne and all these guys from Hooks Band sitting there, Tim Richards. And, yeah. and I plug in my bass and we play a little bit and, you know, they're like, oh, we meet each other, you know. And, and the door opens up and in walks Hook and he's got a complete pimp suit out on, you know, <laughs> maroon red pimp suit. The same thing you saw him on the Healer, the yeah. album cover of the Healer. Yeah. Looks just like that full hat, the whole thing, socks, pimp, the whole thing. <laughs> he pulls in. Sits down. He he says, oh, well, "What's your name?" I said, "John." He goes, "Well, no, 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 I'm John Lee Hooker." I go, "Yeah, I guess." <laughs> you know, I got that. He goes, "Oh, well, let's play." He starts going, so we start playing, right? Yeah. And Hook, as you, if you didn't know, Hook was known for playing really uh, messed up bar blues. Like he'd do eleven <laughs> and three quarter bar blues. You know, standard form is twelve bars. <laughs> he'd do seven and a half bars. It didn't it didn't matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It just like. And uh, he, so he starts playing, and I didn't miss the changes at all. <laughs> and he's like, well, he goes, he, we played about 40 seconds. He goes, you got the gig. He stands up and le- leaves. Wow. <laughs> stands up and leaves. And I never even talked to him about it. You got the gig, stands up and leaves. And, uh, and I go, okay, great. Well, I'm going to go home and get my stuff. And the guy goes, oh, no, 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 we're leaving in an hour and a half. <laughs> I got a T-shirt, one pair of jeans, a pair of Air Jordans, and my bass. Um, and so we shipped the amp down. They shipped the amp to, uh, I think they shipped the amp to Iowa City, Iowa. <laughs> and I got in the bus an hour and a half later, two hours later, and we left. <laughs> and I was on the road. And, and my first night, so to get to the breakfast story, we play Iowa City, Iowa. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, head over heels. And I, yeah. I killed that, that gig with him. I didn't miss any of those changes. I was right on him. And uh-huh. the, the secret of that, people don't know, was to stand behind him. And whenever his mouth moved, you change. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so he'd go, Mabel, I'm going out tonight. Oh, Mabel. I'm going out. So I'd change whenever his mouth moved. Yeah. Right? And never miss him. So the next morning I get up and I'm like, I'm pretty excited. This was fun. This is great. I'm a 28-year-old guy and I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. We get up, Hook says, well, I'm taking you to breakfast. Take, take the whole band to Denny's. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's six or seven of us, right? We get in one of those big booths, you know, the big red you know, vinyl booths. And Hook gets in first, and, uh, and all the band sits on this side, on the, on the left side of him. They all uh-huh. pile in on the left side of him. Hook just keeps scooting over, yeah. scooting over around the thing like this, right? <laughs> And I'm like, well, cool. I get to sit right next to Hooker. This is very cool. So I yeah. sit right up on his right side, right here yeah. Yeah. on his right side. And uh, I don't know if you know much about John, but John had no teeth on the right side of his mouth. Oh, geez. So, and he, uh, I didn't know this, but he order, always ordered scrambled eggs in the morning. Oh. So, and he would tell these stories and he would start laughing and Hook didn't have no control over that. So... He'd start telling stories and everybody in the band and they're all looking at me and they're all smiling. They're all like, <laughs> you know, Mike Osborne. I still give Mike shit. But, um, and they're all looking at me and smiling. Hook starts telling stories and then he would go, Wah! like this. And because he started laughing at his own jokes and the eggs just comes this way. And I'm just, I'm just covered with eggs. So that was my initiation into his band was to never sit on the right side of Hook when he's eating scrambled eggs. So it, anyhow, that's kind of the story on that. Wow. I can't, you know, he's such a mysterious figure. Mm. He's inscrutable. Yeah. You know, I mean, did you find him inscrutable or did you figure him out? Well, Hook, uh, he used to do this thing. Yeah. It's, it's hard to explain. He would sit on stage uh-huh. and he would play something really, really sad. Yeah. You know? Oh, you know, come, hmm, hmm. You know, he'd do yeah. some stuff like, hmm, hmm. Yeah. And then he would turn around, he would put his hand over his face, you know, cover his hand and mm-hmm. his head like he was really sad and contemplating. Yeah. And then he would turn around and look at you and go. <laughs> and smile. Yeah, and smile at the guys in the band. He'd turn around and go. And then he'd go back to shaking his head in his hand. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I once asked him, you know, why, why, why'd you start playing? And he said, money and women. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean he was but he was a deep cat you know I yeah, mean he yeah. the, the stuff that he actually put out 
the stuff that he played was pretty deep, man. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it was pretty meaningful. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. uh, so he, I think he was better um, expressing himself through music than he was uh -huh. just talking. Uh-huh. You know, uh -huh. uh, he couldn't write. He huh. couldn't read or write. Really? Oh, no. Wow. No, he couldn't read or write. But he was a smart cat. And he'd yeah. been through a lot of, uh -huh. a lot of, he knew how to make money in the industry. And he knew what to sign and what not to sign. Um, and he knew what to pay his band and what not to pay his band. John was <laughs> thrifty. Thrifty. It cost me <laughs> One way to put it. It cost me $14 to play Carnegie Hall. Jeez. Yeah. But I got, you know what I got out of that? I have the marquee from the front of the building wow. from that night. There was two of them. Uh, John Shearer, famous concert promoter, had put that concert on. And there are eight foot by three foot marquees that sit in the front of Carnegie Hall on each side of the front uh -huh. door. Uh -huh. And uh, I got one of them. And the reason I got one of them is my aunts, all my aunts that I talked about, yeah. they had sent me roses backstage at Carnegie <laughs> Hall. Now, there's like four dozen red roses backstage at Carnegie yeah. Hall from yeah. Aunt Mary and Aunt Florida uh -huh. and stuff. And, and I couldn't take them with me. So, because uh, you can't put them on the tour, but where do you put them? On the yeah. bus, yeah. you know, yeah. roses. It's right. just so I gave them to the uh, Gino Saskaga Scratchy, whoever the, the, yeah. the guy who was running the backstage, right. the, the, head, uh, yeah. the head Italian yes. uh, from, the, yes. from, the, um, right. from the union. Uh -huh. And I said, these are for your mom. And he comes back about 10 minutes later with this thing rolled up in a, in a thing. And he goes, I told John Shear, he wanted them both. I told John Shear that this ripped in half. Here, this is for you. Wow. And he gave me the actual marquee, which I have at my house. Yeah. It's signed by everybody. Is it framed? Yeah, it's framed. It's up on the wow. wall at my house. Yeah. That's amazing. It's on my Facebook page somewhere if you yeah. look through it. <laughs> and uh, it's huge. It's, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have to get a moving truck just to take that thing wow. with me. So. Even when he was an old man and he made that album with uh, Carlos Santana. Yeah, The Healer. And that, that song, Things Gonna Change. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think he wrote that. I think he wrote it right there in the studio. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, uh, yeah. they just found a groove, uh -huh. and, and that's kind of how he would do stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. That got me through a rough period. That, that one tune got me through a very rough period. Yeah. That was yeah. great. Because it's a, it's a very hopeful tune. Yeah, it is. You know? You know, yeah. Hook yeah. was always, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hook was, uh, he was great. Hook was mm -hmm. great. I, I, here's a story. I'm, at, I'm watching TV. I lived with John. Uh -huh. Mike and I both lived with John in his house uh, when we were out on the road because in, in between tours we'd have six, eight weeks and there's no, no reason to go anywhere you know, or move into a house. The, playing for two houses was ridiculous and John yeah. had a big house off San Carlos, uh -huh. in, um, off Holly Street in San Carlos in the Bay Area. So I was, it was a Sunday and I'm watching the 49ers on television. We're watching football, right? Yeah. And Hook's back in his bedroom. And Hook's watching the Dodgers because Hook loved the Dodgers. All right. Oh, he loved Jackie Robinson. He loved oh, the Dodgers. Okay, gotcha. It was gotcha. No, nothing else mattered. Yeah. The Giants honored Hook, give him a big because he was living in San Francisco. Uh huh. And he hated the Giants. He of said, course, he hated. He the said Giants. this was very hard <laughs> yeah. for me, John. <laughs> so uh, he's back watching the Dodgers, and I remember that uh, uh, George Thorogood uh -huh. knocked on the front door. Yeah. Hey, is John there? And I go. Oh, okay, hold on, I'm going to go back and see. And I went back in the back, and, and uh, I said, John, uh, 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 George Thurgood is at the front door. He goes, well, tell that mother go away. <laughs> and I went, John, he's George Thurgood. I'm watching the game. I'm watching the game. Tell them to come back tomorrow. <laughs> so I had to go out to the front door and tell George, said, hey, George, John doesn't, he's, you know, watching the game. He's, he's come back tomorrow. And George was like, Okay, and then left. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so he was an enigmatic guy, you know. He was uh, yeah, yeah, he was yeah. kind of a conundrum. He was yeah very well aware of what his worth was, uh huh, right, uh huh, um, and how unique he was. And really, when we lost BB, we lost the last one of him, right? The last, and and Hook was the one to go before right. that. So, right. you know, one of the one of our Oregon music news writers just uh, just spent two hours with Tony Coleman. Oh, yeah. Who totally opened up about the whole thing. Right. And I can't wait to read it. Yeah. You know? Well, Tony, I'm playing with Tony um, at the Blues Festival with Kingfish, the young... Really? Oh, young that kid? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm yeah. doing that little Northwest tour with him and Jimmy Pugh. 
Uh-huh. So that should be fun. Wow, be that's fun. that's great. Is Jimmy Pugh going to be at, at the at the Blues Festival too? Yeah. Nice. We're doing a couple sets at the Blues Festival, nice. one on the nice, nice, boat nice. and then one on the big stage. Uh-huh. And then um, and uh, we did it last year and it was a lot of fun yeah. and yeah. I love playing with Tony because he's just yeah. uh, massive energy. He's just a force uh -huh. of nature on the uh -huh. drum kit. So I mean, you're going to do yeah. Whatever it is Tony says you're going to do. <laughs> and that's the way it should be, you know. It, I mean, is, it is. I like yeah. drummers like that. Yeah. I like yeah. drummers that, yeah. you know, Jimmy Bott. Uh -huh. you know, I love Brian's um, Foxworth. Uh -huh. I love yeah. Carlton's plan. I love these cats uh -huh. who, you know what they're going to do, and you know they're going to be right there where they're supposed to be. Yeah. So that yeah. lets you, like, I'm going to mess with this a little bit, and they hear you, and they, yeah. play, they yeah. play it back to you, you know, yeah. that stuff. You know, my, the first drummer I ever played with, um, in college was uh, Larry Bard, great drummer here mm -hmm. from here in Portland. And then the second drummer I ever played with was Bruce Carter. Oh. So uh -huh. I had, you know, yeah. I, and then the third drummer I played with was Mel Brown. Ooh. You know, and then it just went on and on and on. I had these great drummers. And even when I was playing in Johnny and the Distractions, I had uh -huh. uh, Damian Dillon was doing that gig. And Damian was a great drummer. He's living in Germany now. And so uh -huh. there's always, we've always been very lucky here yeah. in Portland. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you know what it is about Portland? Yeah, they're great drummers. This is the city of bass players. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. I've never, I've, I've asked everybody. I've asked, I've asked Glenn Moore. I've asked Andre St. James. I've asked, I've asked every bass player that I've ever known, except I, except I never asked, asked you. Why is it there's so many great bass players in Portland? Well, first of all, you have to have somebody to listen to, okay? Uh -huh. You have to have somebody to listen to to go, yeah. wow, that's cool. There's got to be someone that excites you. Yeah. Someone that makes you go, wow, uh -huh. I want to do that, right? Uh -huh. So, uh I was lucky enough to have, you know, Dave Friesen, Glenn Moore, uh -huh. uh, all these cats that I got to listen to. Lester McFarlane. Uh -huh. Lester McFarlane, man. It's Lester. It's all Lester McFarlane. Really? All of it. Oh, yeah. The original Gangsters, all uh -huh. those clubs, and all those bands in Northeast Portland. Uh -huh. And I had Nate Phillips, too, because, see, I started fairly late. I started when I was 19. Really? And so I heard, I saw Nate Phillips, and I used to go listen to Lester McFarlane when he was in the Jeff Lubber Fusion. Mm -hmm. over at Ray's Helm and I, would, I was too young to get in so I would stand by the back door because Lester's amp was right next to the back door and I would sit there on my uh, I had a Plymouth Roadrunner <laughs> and I would sit there on my Plymouth Roadrunner sit on the hood and, and listen to Lester play but that so is we, classic that is a classic classic tale yeah of a young guy not being able to get into the club and listening at the door I would sit there at the I door I mean that's that's, 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 that's a, you know that's I would like, sit there at the door I still play like Lester I mean, yeah. not as, I don't play like Lester, uh -huh. but that still, you know, uh -huh. influences a lot of my playing. You know, I can still see his hands. What did he do? That, that well, he so had, much. you know, Lester, first of all, God bless him, he's still alive. Uh -huh. Lester had some real bad drug problems for a long time. But he got a call from the, the Crusaders uh -huh. um, because of his pocket. Because of his groove, I think that's a lot of that is lost nowadays. Uh -huh. That there's a lot of cats who know how to play the pentatonic scale, uh -huh. but just can't lay in the groove. Uh -huh. So Lester could lay in the groove, and he had this. Uh, he just he would just play. He his approach, you know. Uh -huh. Same with Nate Phillips. Nate Phillips was kind of the. Nate is it's it's Nate's world, man. Really, Nate Phillips is uh, to me. Nate Phillips, Stanley Clark. Um, uh, Marcus Miller, uh -huh. to me, I think, and Victor Wooten, uh, those are the, like the four best players in the world. Nate Phillips uh -huh. is one of the best bass players in the world, huh. ever. Uh -huh. Nate has a physical anomaly. Uh -huh. His right thumb is longer than his left thumb. Wow. Yeah. So when he thumps, Jeez. it's like, I mean, he's a gift. <laughs> so, uh, so I got to l see these guys growing up, yeah. you know, and yeah. It, yeah. a lot of it was Lester. But then I would go see Glenn Moore, and I, and I loved upright you know and mm -hmm. i loved glenn's playing and i uh, and dave friesen he would tune his bass weird and we'd all go wow this is weird he's playing all this weird stuff yeah and but it was you know rob thomas was a great bass player back uh -huh. then too he was a violin player he's in new york now great bass player back then uh playing with tom grant and all those guys uh -huh. and so we'd have these influences you know uh -huh. and that's why i think the, the bass is so prevalent you know and the uh -huh. young cats that are bringing it up are so good at it yeah. Yeah. is they've been able to see uh guys that played before them uh -huh. you know and well at what point did you find your own voice um i would say it was with lights out with lights mm -hmm. out was uh not many people know about that band but lights out was a seminal band here in portland and mm -hmm. 
As a matter of fact, I was just looking back through some stuff I did, an interview I did in a, a, a magazine called The Downtowner in 1984, where wow. I talked about the dearth of uh, African-American musicians in, in, in Portland on the mm-hmm. weekends. We couldn't get a gig on the weekends. Hmm. They'd have us down on Tuesdays. Peter Mott and uh, the rest of the guys from The Last Raw back in the early 80s would have lights out on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, but we couldn't do a weekend. So there was no black musicians playing hmm. in downtown Portland on the weekends. Jeez. None. Hmm. You know? And so I actually, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. Is in 1984, I was like, I came out in the newspaper yeah. and went like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. This, this yeah. sucks, you know? Yeah. And now, uh, and then the Rodeo started doing it, and a bunch of other clubs started actually, you know, participating in it, so it was a lot better. Um, but I think it was probably in Lights Out. Lights Out, uh, I got to play with Bruce Carter, Doug Lewis, uh, mm-hmm. Tony Collins, uh, Gary Harris, Dennis Springer, Peter Bowe. It was just, it, it was, I was playing way above my pay grade. Yeah. You know, I was really <laughs> uh, pushing myself. So I had to, uh, I had to really shed. I had to really shed. And uh, so I started, you know, figuring out that I didn't really want to sound like anybody else. I wanted to sound like me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's weird because it, it all comes around. I had a guy, after I did all those Paul DeLay records, I had a guy in uh, Sweden uh, was emailing me for a while, asking me if I could give him, te- teach him how to play like me. <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. totally dumbfounding to me. I was like, <laughs> what? And he goes, no, I've completely pulled all your solos off these records. Jeez. And, and I, he had written them out. Wow. And had sent them to me, my solos. I'm like, huh? Well, why would anybody do that, right? <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think it was probably around the lights out time. Probably around, and I, I uh-huh. had a much more of a um, staccato voice uh-huh. than Nate or, uh, or Lester. More percussive? More percussive voice than yeah. Nate or Lester. And uh-huh. That's because I didn't have the, really the ability to play as cool as they did. So <laughs> I, had to, <laughs> I had to play a little bit harder, uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. So it was kind of a mix of Stanley Clark and Nate, but mm-hmm. mostly Lester. And then, you know, Jocko came out, and then we all had to find our... Yeah. Then that, that changed everything, you yeah. know. But yeah. to me, it was Lester McFarlane was really the guy. Lester uh-huh. McFarlane was the guy. Uh-huh. He was... And he's still around. He's still around. Lester's still Is around. Is uh, he's playing a little bit of upright. I, I saw him on Facebook. If you find him on Facebook, if anybody's listening to this, I would urge you to friend, befriend Lester McFarlane. Um, uh, he, I don't know how good a health he is in. The last picture I saw of him was not good. And there was a time when he spent uh, 10 or 15 years playing on the streets of Seattle. Jeez. Where he was literally living on the streets and playing on the streets. But wow. a real unique Him voice. and Andre Williams probably at the same time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really unique voice. Yeah. And, and Nate yeah. had a unique voice. Uh-huh. And uh, so I got to grow up with unique voices. So mm-hmm. that's probably why I found my... And also, you know, Thera Memory is a guy that when I was 19 and, or 20 years old, I'd been playing about six months, and I was just enrolled myself at, uh, Port- at uh, Mount Hood Community College. And uh, Thera came out to Mount Hood Community College and said, you're coming with me. And I went and played huh. with Thera's Creative Jazz Orchestra for three years. And huh. uh, once again, way above my pay grade. Yeah. And, but learned how to uh, play music and do drugs and <laughs> everything else in that band. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and that was a great band, and Thera yeah. was really... Who else was in that band? Oh, God. Um, <coughs> Peter Piazza, Warren Rand, Janice Scroggins. Uh, Mel Brown played in that band sometimes. Ronnie Steen played in that band sometimes. Uh, Warren Rand. Yeah. Did I hear Sig Warren? Yeah. Uh, uh, the horn section was amazing. Dave Mills did all the... Uh, Dave, who runs Solvax now, he did yeah, all yeah. the charts. Yeah. Uh, Louis Longmire. Uh, huh. Just a lot of guys. It just... Everybody that was trying to learn how to play at that time. I was roommates with uh, Dave Mills at that time for a uh-huh. while, uh, uh-huh. right when I first came out of Mount Hood. And uh, uh, Baba Tunde uh, was our roommate, too. Uh-huh. And uh, that, that was on 60th and Belmont, wow. which is very hip now. But back then, yeah. we were renting a pretty scuzzy house on uh, 60th <laughs> and Belmont. I wish you could rent those now. Well, you know, the interesting <laughs> story about that was that was a cr- directly across the street from a pharmacy um, uh, the pharmacy uh, got robbed 
of uh, some cocaine oh, geez. one night, and uh, uh, that was, may have been my roommate, <laughs> and, and uh, Don Mumford, uh, Babatunde Don Mumford, and that may have been, ended up in a Drugstore Cowboy by Gus Van Zandt. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, it, all I got to say is it's the same pharmacy in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same exact way it happened that I told him one night when I was playing in a punk band called The Results and he was sitting at the table. <laughs> so that's all I know. That's all I know. You were in a punk band? Uh, yeah, I was in a band called The Results. I've been, I've been, I played, I mean. Did I've, you have the look? Huh? Oh, did yeah, I had green hair. Did you? Yeah. Wow. I had green hair. It was in a band <laughs> called The Results. It was a really good band. I, safety tens? Uh, no safety pins. No safety pins. I refused to uh, to uh, alter my body at that point. I would do it now. Now I would. At 59, I'm in. You know. So, um, but it was. You know, it was. It was the time. I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then right after that, I started playing with uh, with uh, Johnny Coons, uh -huh. and uh, I did the Johnny the Distractions gig for a while, and then I got the Richard Burdell gig, right when Richard got sick, and uh, as a matter of fact. Phil Baker, who I've known forever, uh -huh. who we played in the first, he was in the first band at Mount Hood, I was in the second band. Wow. And uh, Phil came And who also wrote my favorite tune that Pink Martini ever recorded. Which was? At Bossa Nova. At Bossa Nova, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, he, there you go. It's the most, one of the most beautiful tunes I've ever heard. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And I, yeah. uh, and Phil's a, Phil was a great musician when he was 18 when I first met him. Really? And I love him. I love his wife, Gina, and they're mm -hmm. just fantastic people. And. Um, but Phil came up to me one day when I was playing with Richard and said, John, Richard's slurring his words. You should have him go to the doctor. Oh, boy. And I actually said that to Richard, and that's the first time anybody had ever said it to him. Uh -huh. And that's when we found out he had ALS, and, oh. uh, and that was heartbreaking. Yeah. And I was, because yeah. uh, he had a band called Cruise Control, and then he, it, it morphed into this band that we had. And I was back in Chicago with him. We were rehearsing back in Chicago, and we were owned by, the, by Revlon actually owned the band really yeah and they had put out a tune uh, uh the super bowl shuffle after the bears won <laughs> yeah, the super bowl yeah, in 85 yeah, yeah and i was in that band and we used to, we would rehearse back in in chicago <laughs> and that's when we found out and he went home and uh, got diagnosed and that was the end of that situation but wow. richard and i richard was a very good friend i loved him very much uh -huh. and we'd spent a couple of wonderful summers together on his boat uh, uh going up and down the willamette yeah. Being absolutely stupidly stupid, <laughs> <laughs> but he was a great musician. Great musician. Now you told me you were you you, you, uh, you played on Janis Rogan's first gig in Portland. First two gigs. Yeah. Wow. This is like wow. Seventy eight. Uh huh. Seventy nine. Seventy eight. Seventy nine. Uh huh. And Janis was had just just moved here, and uh, and I love Janis. I still love Janis, and I, you know. I miss her. I think I played from in her third to last gig she did before she passed. Jeez. And uh, and we played together <laughs> in this bar. We played together in this bar. Scotty Wardinsky remembers this too. And it was like 78, 79, and uh, there'd be a fight every night in the bar. <laughs> and these uh, uh, and the people would go fight, and they'd fight right out onto Burnside Street. And Janice and I played in in that band. I still have a picture of that somewhere. Um, and she was young, and Arietta, her daughter, yeah. Etta, Arietta was uh, was just a baby, and I would hold Etta in my arms, and Janice <laughs> would play the piano, and then I'd hold, give Janice to Etta to Janice, and I'd play the bass, and <laughs> it'd go back and forth <laughs> like that. And uh, uh, so I remember Etta when she was just a very young uh, person, and I, uh, uh -huh. you know, Janice's uh, situation is a lesson to all of us to take care of ourselves as we get older yeah. you know yeah. and uh and i worry about that with you know a lot there's been a lot of health problems and a lot of people have right. passed well you saw that with paul yeah paul delay yeah paul yeah. was yeah. well i spent four great years with paul yeah and uh we got to record two i think real seminal albums uh -huh. ocean of tears and yeah. uh, and it was great i mean it was great and we got to write some really unique stuff i mean that stuff still is unique Sure. And uh, I, I still play it on the radio. Yeah, and I think he was still, uh, you know, you know, I still think Nice and Strong and Ocean of Tears were mm -hmm. 
some of the best writing and still some of the most seminal weird blues stuff, you know, outside Stu. And he was probably still the greatest blues harmonica player that yeah. ever lived. Yeah. I mean, he could, you know, when he wanted to, he could sound exactly like Little Walter. Is that right? Oh, just. And then you say, play like Big Walter. He'd play four bars of Big Walter. <laughs> I mean, he could do all that other stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah and then, yeah. It, well, play like Paul DeLay. And then he play like Paul DeLay, you know, yeah, I mean, so he had his own voice. So back then, you know, you were talking about having your own voice. Yeah. A lot of us had to develop our own voice to get a gig. Right. You know, right. to get just a gig. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jack McMahon, who's a local guitar player. Uh-huh. Great. He's got his own voice. I mean, all uh-huh. those guys, we had our own voices back then. You know who can do that is Ramsey Embick. Yeah, Ramsey's got his own. Ramsey place. had a, 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 a Tuesday night gig for for a few years at the Blue Monk, and no one ever came. Right. Except I would go hear him. Right? right. And I would sit in the audience, and I just I would just yell out a piano player. I go like, Bud Powell, mm-hmm. and he he would become Bud Powell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you could yell at anybody. Right. You know, and I, yeah, Cecil Taylor. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, we play with Eddie. He plays in, with Eddie, and and yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah. and uh, him and I kind of run the Soul Commanders too. And uh-huh. uh, Ramsey's uh, stupid, valuable I know, uh, thing I know. here. I yeah. mean, people don't even know that oh, well, yeah. how hard he works at yeah. his craft. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he can play anything. Right? I know that. Sound like Herbie. You <laughs> yeah. sound like Herbie. Yeah, yeah. that's just to me. That's a little <laughs> freaky. <laughs> it is. It is. That's what, you know, I mean. So that's why I was one of the three people in the audience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> three, one of the three fans, right? Yeah. And thank God that uh, Tim, uh, Tim, uh, what was the guy who owned the Blue Monk? Uh, Tim, what's his name anyway? Oh, yeah, that uh, yeah, was Baldhead. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, thank God he kept him on all those yeah, years. Right, right, know? right. And he was a re- goddamn Red Sox fan. He Tim, was? Tim was. Ooh. And would give me hell. Every because the Orioles were, were crappy then, right? Right, right. And I mean, I remember one time, and uh, him and, and the guy he owned it, owned it with were dead drunk on one of the blues cruises during the blues festival, right. dead, and they were just unmerciful. Oh, yeah, they didn't care about the blues cruise at all. They just wanted, <laughs> they just to, talk wanted baseball. to give me shit. Right. So, so <laughs> tell me your thoughts on the Nationals. I mean, what do you think of the Nationals? I hate the Nationals. Yeah, that's what I figured. I figured Fuck you. Fuck the Nationals. <laughs> They're the, reasons, they're, the, they're the reason the Orioles are a small market team now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a – I mean, they had to yeah. see that coming. Well, that's why Peter Angelos owns the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. Right. Who has to – the Nationals have to be on that. Right, so that's, right. You know, gets, yeah, that kind of screws so, wait, so, look, how does – let's, let's I want to talk about your other business for a little bit. Okay. So – you you teach people how to make presentations. Right. Okay. Now, how does your how does your musical career inform that? Okay. Well, this is interesting because I started this about twelve or thirteen years ago. Uh-huh. Um, um, a friend of mine called me and said, "We're going after. Uh, I have to make my quarterly reports to the vice presidents at Xerox, uh-huh. and um, and would you come over? I've seen you on stage. Would you come over and watch me?" do it and maybe you can help me and I can get a little bit so I went over and down to Xerox and Wilsonville and I watched this guy uh, give his do this report and I gave him some tips I said stand uh-huh. don't stand like this don't do you know I said uh-huh. so he gave his report to the vice president the next day and I got a call from the vice president the next day <laughs> and he goes who are you and what did you do <laughs> and I said I'm John and I, I just told him you know what he should do to stand up in front of people so that he can be engaging yeah and he said, could you do it for me? Ah. And I said, sure. So I, two weeks later, I went. He was giving his uh, quarterly report to the shareholders of the company back in Rochester, New York. And um, I gave him some tips. I gave Jim some tips. I worked with him for a little bit for just about a day. Mm-hmm. And he said, how much do I owe you? And I said, you're going to pay me? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And I went, okay. okay. So I kind of made a number <laughs> up. And he, he uh, sent me a check two weeks later, right? Uh-huh. So he went and did his quarterly report for the shareholders and two of the other vice presidents called me and said, uh, what did you do with Jim? Who are you and what did you do? Yeah. So they had a friend, a guy named Duncan Balish, who ran an architecture firm, one of the larger architecture firms in San Francisco, uh, EHDD, Esrick, Hemsley, Dodge, and Davis. And they do, let's see, you, what would you know about? They do the Monterey Bay Aquarium. That was theirs. Uh, that changed aquariums for the entire country. They did the University of California at Berkeley, a <laughs> small little 
project. <laughs> yeah. They did uh, half of Stanford University. This is small. <laughs> this is small stuff. Um, so he calls me up and says, we're going after the Fresno State Library uh, uh, redesign. It's a $42 million project. Would you come down and work with my team? Because uh, uh, I'd gotten recommended from this guy, Xerox. So mm -hmm. I, uh, I, went and, um, I went down there, and I worked with him with a friend of mine, Than Clevenger, who had originally got the call. And uh, we went down there, and the first day, Than started going through his stuff with the guy. And by the end of the first day, I was running it. And by the end of the second day, Than had left, and I was just doing it. So we went after the Fresno State Library, and they lost, and I was bummed. I was oh. like, oh, my God, we lost. So I didn't th think of it, and I went on with my regular work day. And uh, three months later, he calls me back and says, we're going after the uh, Moffitt Library redesign at the University of California, Berkeley. It's $97 million. Would you come down and help us? And I went, there might be a business here. Yeah. So I go down, and I helped, uh, I helped EHDD, and they won. And they won their next seven in a row. Oh, boy. And they won eight of their, lack, their next nine. And they won 11 of their next 14, and which was about $850 million worth of projects. It's the Wairika County Courthouse. It's the Sonoma County Courthouse. It's the, uh, it, it, uh, well, let's see, Pom University of California, Pomona, Millican Library redesign. We just went, we just started knocking stuff down. Mm -hmm. Just boom, 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 like this. <laughs> Literally made all their buildings for the next five years. Wow. And uh, they told a friend of theirs, Sunt Construction, Sunt called me. And they told a friend of theirs, the CAW, CAW called me. So mm -hmm. I started expanding the people that I worked with. And essentially what I do is I go in and I work with a team of architects, engineers, and construction people mm -hmm. and turn them into the Harlem Globetrotters <laughs> in three days. Wow. Right, so they're passing the ball back and forth to each other, mm -hmm. and most of all of this I learned from watching Curtis Salgado. Really, for eight years. Wow! <laughs> so it, all the glory should go to Kurt what, here. Uh, explain that. <laughs> well, I would watch how Curtis Salgado would work a crowd. Mm -hmm. I would watch how he would stand. Mm -hmm. I would watch, you know, Kurt. If you didn't know, Curtis is very erect he stands straight oh, up yeah. when yeah. he's performing yeah he is straight up he's right here you can kind of tell by my body language it just changed yeah right there yeah, yeah, he is yeah. right up here yeah. and he demands your attention mm -hmm. and part of how he does that is with his ability to pause ah when speaking <laughs> right <laughs> so i pulled some of that from him and i pulled some of that from bill cosby Huh. You know, believe it or not, because you know, Bill Cosby would be a story, would tell a, tell yeah, a story yeah. on stage, yeah. and he would pause. My brother, Russell, <laughs> then hit me, you know? And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. uh, so I would learn... Well, timing's everything. Yeah, timing is the whole thing. Yeah. So uh, I started... So that's how that stagecraft kind of comes <laughs> into, um, into presentations now. Uh, and I still want to do more of this. I, I, I don't do as much as I'd like to. Mm -hmm. Um, but I worked, I just worked on the Alamo for Page and Turnbull mm -hmm. out of San Francisco. Um, and I, I would like to do more of this. I would like to help more people with this. I think I could, one of the things I'd like to break into is uh, doing more startups. Because startups, those guys are 19 or 20. They have a great idea. They've yeah. got money behind them. They yeah. don't know how to talk to people. Yeah. They don't yeah. know how to stand on Do you stage. watch Silicon Valley? Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> They're so... <laughs> Those guys, those guys are probably really good, yeah. actually, in person. Yes. They, it's, must, it's really a great <laughs> acting job to be that bad <laughs> right. in front of people. Um, so I'd like to help startups. I'd like to do some uh, more help with startups and, uh, and, and, and try to get into that field a little bit and branch out a little bit maybe from construction companies. Um, mm -hmm. But I have a wonderful track record. I went 75 to 80% of the, which is unheard of. Yeah. Unheard of. But it's... I work on content, and I also work on their character. Uh -huh. Like, how do they stand? How do they look? What do they wear? Uh, how do they present themselves? I mean, this old saying goes, an introverted architect looks at his shoes, <laughs> and an extroverted architect looks at your shoes. <laughs> right? So I try to get them to open up and be more human mm -hmm. when, they, uh, mm -hmm. when they talk to people. Because yeah. they have a real hard time getting right. natural. Try to be Italian. It, <laughs> essentially, yeah, you know, but not quite so <laughs> right. vociferous, yes. you know what I mean? Yes. So I you want to you want to try to uh, gauge your audience and how do you draw them in? Yeah, uh, I'd I'd like to actually. Sometimes I see these 
TED Talk people, uh -huh. and I would love to help some of those people. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a point of, uh, especially the ones you see that are filmed, uh -huh. and they must film certain portions of the audience because they're all like, Hmm. Hmm. I'm really. Oh, that's it. like an audience. That's, you know, that's like. Yeah. That's so bogus. It's, a, it's just so yeah, completely right, bogus. Right. Because the because the you know the guy's going like, okay, look, give me ten minutes of audience audience shots, and they'll just use anything. Yeah, they'll use. Just could, roll they it could in. Be, with, you know, yeah, it could when be you any, need an edit, you just dump. I mean, I, I mean, I spent yeah. you know most of my career in television. You know. You know that. And the thing is, I stopped. I, you know, I, I did I, I did that at the beginning, and I would have I would have videographers go, I'm, I'll get you these audience react. No. No, because Scorsese taught me that. Yeah. Because when Scorsese did the last, the little, the last waltz, mm -hmm. was it the last waltz? Yeah. Um, I, I heard him say, no, I only want rea uh, audience reaction shots if you can see part of the band and if it's real, if yeah. it's actually happening. Right. right. No B-roll. No, no B-roll. No, right. no. Right. And, and that was like, that was against everything I was ever taught. Right. When, you know, when I first started. Because sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll see these TED Talks and. And the audience right. can't tell right. the smell that's right. coming from the stage. Right. They right. can't right. smell the yeah. stage, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like it's like it's like the old Monty Python thing where they would just throw in this 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 old shot of, of an audience applauding. Right, Remember right, that? right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and now for something completely different, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, it's it's true. So I think yeah. that those guys are sitting in their own effluence and it's hard for them to see yeah. that it, boy, yeah, that yeah. kind of smells up there, you know. So <laughs> Uh, I would like to help some of them. Yeah. Uh, I would like to help some startups, but that's kind of the niche I'm in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did uh, full-blown public relations for a long time, mm -hmm. and uh, this is much more satisfying to me. I, I, you know, I coached for years and years and years. I coached uh, uh, youth basketball yeah. at, at Multnomah Athletic Club. I was one of the head coaches up there at the Multnomah Athletic Club, and all my sons and all their friends and and. Um, and so for years and years, and I did that. And there's a lot of reflections of those two. There's a lot of similarities between teaching people how to present on stage and how to teach eight-year-olds to run a basketball <laughs> play. <laughs> a lot of similarities there. <laughs> so, anyhow, that's great. So, um, how are you dividing your time? What percentage are, is music? Which percentage is, is the business? It all depends, really, on on the schedule and the time of year. Yeah. You know, time of year. Because uh, you got you, and you got. Uh, festival season coming festival up. season coming up I'll yeah. do more wedding seasons coming up I'll yeah. do more music yeah. um, the presentation business especially with the uh, University of California school system and some of the bigger gigs that I get called on dries up in the summer because everybody uh -huh. goes on summer vacation yeah so yeah. Uh, my busy time for presentations is usually January through May uh -huh. or June uh -huh. and then September through the end of the year everybody's got to get their thing done by the end of the year uh -huh. So I'll get five or six or seven or eight in November and December. Yeah. And then December 15th, boom, it dries up, it's gone. Yeah. And then it'll start again at the end of January. Yeah. So it's seasonal, depending on. How many bases do you own? Oh. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> tell the truth. Uh, I own uh, 13. 13? Yeah. Yeah. 13. So. Active? Yeah. I play them all. Really? Yeah. My favorite base right now is a $200 1980 three Japanese Fender Squire Jeez. and uh, why because it is a sweetheart of an instrument yeah. and it just plays beautifully you know the early 80s Japanese basses that was actually parts from the 60s uh -huh. that the Fender when they changed over it was uh -huh. when, when CBS bought Fender in 64 and, uh, and 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 changed over they decided that since Gibson was making money and Fender was not uh-huh that everything had to have a bound neck, which is mother of pearl around the neck, yeah. and had to have big uh, pearl inlays, uh -huh. which is what you saw the jazz bass go to. Yeah. Uh, but everything had to have a bound neck. So huh. uh, a lot of those parts, they had thousands of those necks sitting there, and a lot of those parts they shipped over to Japan. So huh. in the late uh -huh. 70s, they finally signed the deal with Japan, and they had all these parts from these early 60s basses uh -huh. uh, sitting in Japan. So I think my neck is probably, I don't know, on that bass, it's probably a late 60s neck and uh it's huh. a great bass it's just a and it, you know you got to play a lot of basses yeah to find out what works for you yeah and um but the more basses i play the more i go back to the fender precision huh do you anthropomorph anthropomorphize your, your instruments there i did a did a piece once on the great cellist zoe keating uh -huh. and she said she, she 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 finally had to get a new cello 
Uh-huh. And she said, it's like I'm dating them. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I have to massage them. Yeah. They have to be. Yeah, no, it's, no, it's absolutely true. I have to massage them. Like, I can tell right away if it's the neck. And, and frankly, any bass, electric bass, it's the neck. Yeah. The rest of the bass don't matter. Huh. It's the neck. Uh-huh. Man, that uh-huh. neck has got to yeah. fit your hand. Yeah. You got to have that neck that just goes, oh, well, yeah, okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's and so it's, it's about how it feels in your left hand. Yeah. And I have an advantage. This is my secret of my whole playing career. Yeah. I'm left-handed. Yeah. I play right-handed. Ah. I'm left-handed. So to me, it was just like, yeah, yeah. This was easy. I'm left-handed. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I write, I yeah. eat, everything's left-handed. Yeah, me too. So this is, I'm like, why would I play like this? Is that, this hand's no good. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> Isn't that where the notes are? The notes are up there. See, that explains everything. You're a lefty. Yeah, I'm a lefty. I had a, I had a good curveball when I was a kid. Plays, explains everything. I could, I could, I could throw the curveball because you know it, when I was a kid, my dad was uh, the co- uh, the cross country coach at Benson High School for 25, 30 years. Uh-huh. So I grew up playing sports. Yeah, I, I grew up. Uh, I played on two state championship basketball teams at Benson High School. I was on the JV squad my freshman and sophomore year, and uh, and then I transferred to Wilson. Um, but because there were girls, there was no girls at Benson back then. It was all boys' school. I understand. I'm, so here I am, 17. I went. Wait a minute. Yeah, what's going on here? <laughs> Where's the chicks? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, but I was uh, I was an athlete. I was I wanted to play basketball, uh-huh. and uh, and that's why I mean that's why I didn't play start playing until I was out of high school. But huh. uh, it, it, I was I always wanted to. I always wanted him to be a basketball player. I'm still... What position? Uh, I was point guard. No, it's 5'10 and white. I was point guard. I was going to say that. Ernie DiGregorio. <laughs> that was my to, guy. I was you know. going to say that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, you know, now I'm, I couldn't be any bigger of a Portland Trailblazers fan. I mean, yeah. it's just... Now my dad took me to the first Trailblazer game. Wow. Ever. Jeez. November 10th, 1970 against... Uh, wow. I think we played the Cleveland Cavaliers. Huh. And uh, huh. Uh, the first huh. home game ever. Yeah. And uh, my dad was a paraplegic. Uh-huh. And uh, so we got to sit in really cool wheelchair seats, and uh, that was the that was just weeks after the the Orioles blew it blew the World Series. To that's the, true. To, that's to, true. To, it's to, weeks to, after the Orioles blew the World Series. Go on. You know, and I got to tell you, I grew up as a Cardinal fan. Really, I've always been a Cardinal fan. Uh-huh. I've got a few favorite teams in the league. Yeah. The Cardinals have always been my favorite because I saw Gibson strike out seventeen when I was like six years old or yeah, something. Yeah. Well, I, and I went, oh my God! Boys adopt a, a team between six and eight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was. The, I saw the bat with the two birds on it, oh, yeah. and I was like, yeah, yeah. "That's the coolest thing in the world." Yeah. And so, um, when I was eight years old, the Browns moved to Baltimore. Oh, that was it. That was it. That was it. That was it, dude. <laughs> that was it. You know, it's ba- it's funny because back e- back here in the West, yeah, we always think of these moves as big, momentous things. Yeah, right? oh, yeah. But they're only like 300 miles. Like, I know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, it's like, it's like moving. <laughs> when the Browns moved from uh, Baltimore, which was the worst thing that ever happened to me. In, you in mean the, the Colts? I mean the Colts moved yeah. from Baltimore. Yes. That was the worst thing that ever happened in the history of correct. sports. Of sports. Correct. Yes. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So when they moved to Indiana, which was 1,000 miles away, right. it's like us moving from here to San Francisco. Yeah. But... To back east, that's a huge. Well, it was it was it was tragic. It was unbelievably stupid and yeah. tragic of the league. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. Oh, I think I, the league still regrets it. I can still see the Mayflower vans pulling out in the middle of the night in a snowstorm. In a snowstorm. Yeah. It was in a snowstorm. Yeah. And yeah. he'll yeah. always art. What's his name? Will always be hated. Oh well, I I still refuse to call them the c word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, always a, be the, the, either Indianapolis or the Irsays to me. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I got to tell you something. There are some real travesties in, in sports. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They should have left the Colts name in Baltimore, and they should have left the Jazz name in New Orleans. Absolutely. And the records. The, the, John Unitas holds records. Well, I guess I guess Peyton Manning broke, broke them, but. John Unitas hold, held records in Indianapolis, which is ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Yeah. The, the, for them to call themselves the Utah Jazz I know, is stupid. a joke. Really dude. And, and, and then yeah. to know that, yeah. that Pete Maravich, probably the greatest, right. the closest thing to a musician, yeah. a jazz musician yeah. in basketball form, because yeah. Yeah. he made mistakes like yeah. crazy, and that's <laughs> what jazz musicians do, yeah. uh, stretch the form, played for New Orleans. Right. 
right? I mean, uh, anyhow. I was so happy when they named them the Pelicans. Yeah, it was cool. Well, that's the, the, that was the traditional name of their AAA team. Right, right. Until, you know, until the Zephyrs moved from, from uh, Colorado, which is, they were called the Zephyrs because they were in Colorado. Colorado. And big wins. Right, big right. Win, you know, anyway. If we ever get a Major League Baseball team here, which <laughs> yeah. will never happen, never. I would certainly yeah. hope they name it the Beavers. Of course. I, I would hope yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, and not just because I'm an Oregon State fan, but because – you know the baseball team here is supposed to be called to be hey you know about the new team hmm. the pickles the pickles the portland pickles who's it's a there's a, there's a new league and it's college players with but it's a wooden bat league a wooden bat yeah and they have a little a little a little ballpark in lens Right. And they're like, it's, you know, teams from all over the West, right? Wow. And they're called the Portland Pickles, which is one of the great names for a team ever in history. Wow. <laughs> That's, it's better than the Hillsborough Hops. I've, Much better. I've been out to that stadium. That's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's you, wrong. You, you know, they have some real bad problems out there, too. Really? They built it out of concrete, and they didn't realize when it rains, the water seeps through the concrete. Oh, jeez. So they built the locker rooms underneath oh, the bleachers. No. Oh, no. So geez. guess what happens? Oh, man. <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> we would have gotten back to music eventually, oh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for coming, coming over. This has been great. Uh, we could go on for hours, but, uh, you know, thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me, Thomas.